All right, today's sermon is called The Great Commission and Your Role in It. So this week, this is gonna be a two-part one because I don't have enough time to fit it all into one. So today, it's gonna be The Great Commission. Next week, it's your role in it. So first, kind of a general overview and then more specific details. All right, I figured to start out, we should probably look at what the Bible says about what we call the Great Commission. So let's take a look at Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So I meant to include uh, verse 18 in that, which is um, all authority on, in heaven and on earth have been given to me, therefore, or go therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So this is one instance of where we find um, the Great Commission in the Gospels. I also wanna take a look at Luke 24, verses 46 through 48. And Jesus said to them, yeah, Luke 24, verses 46 through 48. And Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that the repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So in terms of what the Bible tells us about the Great Commission, there's kind of two things um, that involves. Proclaiming the gospel to all nations, but also we see in Matthew discipling all nations or making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So one of the things I want to get at with this is um, I think that this has to do with individuals, but also with cultures, it's both and. So proclaiming the gospel to all nations, proclaiming the gospel is, um, it's something you do with individuals, but I guess it's also with nations. But when it says um, make disciples of all nations, that's not just make a few disciples in all nations, we're to disciple the nations themselves and baptize them or bring them under, bring them into the name, the character, uh, the power and personality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Another thing I wanna hit on briefly, unfortunately I don't have time to go deeper on this, but um, he says make disciples, he doesn't say make decisions or make converts of all nations. He says, make disciples. And moreover, he says, teaching them to do all that I commanded you. So if we're just trying to get decisions out of people, like um, just trying to get them to sin, pray a sinner's prayer, then we're neglecting to teach them to do all that he commanded us to do. If you want an example of what a disciple is or what discipleship means, we can see it in the gospel. Like Jesus didn't just get the 12 to pray sinners prayers and then leave them and be like, okay, now you can go to church. 
or watch your live stream. You're a Christian now. You'll go to heaven when you die. Like Jesus devoted a very large amount of time to teaching them. He was with them day in and day out for three years. And that's, like if we, um, if we don't take the time to disciple people and we only go to get converted people, converted people playing sinners' prayers, you just end up with very undeveloped Christians. All right, the next thing I wanted to get into with this is, um, in case you didn't know, the Great Commission applies to all believers, not just pastors and evangelists. So, um, there's a few reasons we can know this. Number one, just logically it continues. So Jesus is giving a command Go therefore and make disciples of all nations and teach them to do all that I commanded you, which means you need to teach your disciples to make disciples. The command continues. Another way we know that it's for all believers is um, something Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of you for hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. So 1 Peter is a letter of Peter, and who is the letter to? The church. Right. It's not to like an individual. It's not like the letter of First or Second Timothy that was to... Timothy, it wasn't to an individual, it wasn't just to leaders, it was to the church, to everyone. Everyone is commanded to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within them. And then I like looking at my favorite verse, or one of them, my favorite verse to use when preaching. Let's just take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So what's strange about this or what might seem strange, he didn't give the evangelists to evangelize. He gave the evangelists for the building up of the saints for the work of the ministry. Because the work of the ministry, including evangelism, is the work of all the saints. One thing I would like to emphasize, um, it might be easy to feel like, well, sure, I have a role in evangelism, but it's, it's probably not that important. There's nothing I could contribute like. That's not what the Bible teaches about how the church works. The church is a body and all the members are needed. God doesn't create members without purpose or useless members. Um, let's take a look at Ephesians 4:15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Christ's body grows when we grow in spiritual growth. That's part of Christ's body growing. But another part of Christ's body growing is growing with more people, having more parts added to it, getting new disciples and through evangelism. And that also happens when each part is working properly. We all need to be working properly. There's not a person who doesn't have an important role to play in evangelism. And if one of us isn't fulfilling our roles, it makes it harder for everyone else. Like if one part of the body is sick or not doing its job, the whole body suffers. All right, so usually whenever I do a sermon, I have a section like why this is important. I'm still gonna have one with this, but it's gonna be short because I would like to hope that it's obvious why the Great Commission is important. If you don't think it's important, you should consider whether or not you're a Christian. And also, uh, we will have other things to get into. So this is gonna be kind of short. Number one, why it's important. So one of the things I just love about how God wants the gospel proclaimed to all people is God wants to extend his mercy to all people. Even though not everyone will be saved, God desires that everyone would. And he wants his mercy to be known. He wants it to be made manifest. He wants the opportunity to be given people to repent and made clear because it shows God's mercy. One thing, a quote that I really like in relating to like God's mercy and how even, even if not everyone will receive the gospel well. For the sake of showing God's mercy, we should want everyone to hear it anyways. So this is my favorite Charles Spurgeon quote. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. We're to reflect God's heart. God's heart is a God of mercy. God wants to extend mercy towards everyone. That should be important to us. The second reason the Great Commission should be important to you is it's the Great Commission, which is part of the building up of God's people, the redemption of God's people, is the most important thing happening in history right now, and all of creation waits on that. third thing I just wanted to mention is um, not only is the Great Commission important, but just as a reminder, just as an emphasis, it's important that you be pursuing your role in the church. 
in the Great Commission. It makes it harder on the church if we're not our, all contributing and fulfilling our war, role. It's not good for you if you're not, because you are a steward of God and you will answer to God. And if we're not pursuing in an actual way, and this is what's hard for me, and this is why I wanted to speak on this, because God's been working me on this, but if you're not in some tangible way pursuing on the Great Commission, that's disobedience, that's sin. And I don't really do that much, at least I don't think I do, to pursue the Great Commission in terms of actually evangelizing people. So next time that I speak, we'll talk more about on a practical level what to do um, or some ideas if you're looking for more ways to partake or to reach out or to evangelize. All right, this part, uh, this is something I've been excited about and wanted to speak on with this. So I wanted to mention the tools God gives the church because there's various tools God gives us for the Great Commission for evangelism and we tend to not use them all and, uh, and that's really not good. That's like going into war and forgetting a weapon or two or three. So I have a list kind of five to seven, kind of poorly grouped. So the first five are like how God shows the gospel and confirms the gospel to people. And these are tools that God gives us by which to show it um, and have it show it in a confirmed way. So the first one I want to get into is signs and wonders. Signs and wonders um, it is mentioned in the scriptures that they are one of the things God gives for the purpose of affirming his word. And this is an area we're very weak in. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Uh, Mark 16, verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked in them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Acts 14, verse 3. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And then one last verse, and this one, this one to me is the one that bothers me the most about 
how much this is a problem that we don't have this. This more than the other four verses tells me that this is a problem that we don't have this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1-5. through five. And when I came to you, brothers, so this is Paul to the Corinthians, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. To me, that, that means we have a problem if we're missing number one. We should have, um, we should be able to make a defense, and we'll get into that, that's one of the five. But if we don't also have signs and wonders, this is something God gives to attest to his word. And if we don't have it, we have a lacking attestation to God's word. This is... um, it's something we have a problem in the church in America with. It's something we have a problem in the, our church, GCF, personally. But it's something God wants to change. The reason we don't have many signs and wonders is because we lack faith. We're not looking for them or praying for them or expecting them. Jesus wasn't able to do many miracles in Nazareth because they didn't have faith. This is something that needs to be on our minds and in our prayers, because this is a current problem for us, and we need to be intentional about doing something about it. This should be something we pray about weekly and daily that God would change. This is something we should fast about. And we should pray that God would give us more faith, and that God would, by his Spirit, supernaturally impart to us faith. Because faith leads to more faith. Because we have faith in God, by God's grace, and then we see God work, and then we get more faith in God. So that one's really important, and that's something we need to do better in. But the second tool that God gives to show and affirm his gospel is the church is a community. Let's take a look at John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then another one I want to take a look at, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So um, the first verse we looked at, like, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. It doesn't say if you love people. 
It says if you love one another. If Christians love other Christians. Like it's not just a typo. It wasn't Jesus being idle with his words. Jesus wasn't idle with his words. He, he worded it that way on purpose. He meant one another. He meant other Christians. He meant brothers and sisters in Christ. People can easily dismiss one person who's been changed by the power of God and just, well, he's just a nice guy. But if people see dozens of people who have been changed by the power of God, that's not something you can dismiss easily. If we actually lived New Testament community, which is something we're working towards, like that just looks so different from the way people live their lives. There's more joy in it. There's more love. There's supernatural power. It's a work of God, though. Like, you're not going to find other people doing that. You're not going to find non-Christians living the New Testament community lifestyle. And it's shown in multiple verses. We're only going to look at one as an example. But like there's a priority, not only that we love all people, but especially that we love in the church, other brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's look at Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's more verses like that. It's throughout the scriptures, it's particularly important we love other believers. There's power in corporate Christian testimony that you don't get as an individual. All right, the third tool that God gives us to show the gospel as an evidence of the gospel. Logical arguments or logical reasonings. Let's take a look at Acts 17, verses 16 through 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day um, with those who happened to be there. We can't put everything into reasoning. That's the prob- one of the problems with the church in America today. But we can't ignore it either. That is something Paul used. It was part of his MO. And we'll, like it said in First uh, Peter, we are to be able to give a defense for the hope that's within us. So if we're neglecting this, then we are neglecting one of the tools that God gives us to evangelize and to show his gospel. If you've been a Christian for more than a year, you should, look, you should know apologetics at least somewhat. All Christians are commanded to be able to give a defense of the hope that's within them. And not only does apologetics help you with um, evangelism, it'll also help you in your own faith. Because trials in your faith will come in the future. 
All right, the first, fourth tool, um, probably the most obvious one that God gives us for evangelism is the, the scriptures. Amen. Um, I want to look at Isaiah 55, 11. So my... So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We need to know the scriptures well. If we're evangelizing without using the scriptures, that's like, like trying to cook breakfast without bacon. No, it's worse than that. That's a poor example. <laughs> it's like trying to cook breakfast without an oven. Like, if we not only do we need to use the scriptures when we're evangelizing, but we need to get to know them deeper so that we're more equipped. We need to study them. We need to read them. We need to memorize them. All right, the fifth tool that God gives um, us for evangelism is the wisdom and words of his spirit. I want to take a look at Matthew 10, verses 16 through 20. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So this doesn't um, contradict or neglect 1 Peter 3.15. We still have to be prepared to give an answer. But if all we have is our preparation, we're greatly lacking. The reason Jesus was able to always give an answer to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who wanted to trap him is because he had the wisdom of the Spirit. And the Spirit, the Spirit gives the wisdom we need in the conversations we needed in. And if we're not able to hear from the Spirit, then we're really missing a big tool. This is something I struggle with. It's something I'm growing in, but it's something I struggle with. Like I need to be diligent about praying and um, praying for it and pursuing hearing God's voice clearer. But um, there's tons of testimonies I've heard of other people who while evangelizing, the Holy Spirit gave them a word of knowledge, um, or just what they needed to say in that moment. 
One of the ones um, that just comes to mind is Greg had a friend who was evangelizing one day, and he was very anointed and filled with the Spirit, and they were just going out down the street looking for people to evangelize to, and they met this guy, and they asked him what his name was, and he told them something, and, uh, and Greg's one friend told them, you lied, that's not your name, and then he told them what his name was, and he's like, how did you know that? That'd be pretty, like, convicting that these people are serious. But there's also, um, like, I don't have time to get into it, but, like, I, I know lots of people who just, God told them what to say in the moment, and it wasn't necessarily something as miraculous as that, but just the right words to say in the right, right moment. And that's what we need. So the last um, two tools I have aren't grouped together like the first five, uh, specifically for the purpose of showing the gospel um, or helping us communicate it. But these are just tools we need in general for the Great Commission and for evangelism. So prayer and fasting. Like throughout history, great moves of God tend to start with prayer and fasting, with concentrated prayer and fasting. Concentrated corporate prayer and fasting. Also, you can see in the scriptures, God doesn't do much in terms of doing big things apart from prayer. Mm -hmm. It's just clear in the scriptures, God wants people to pray. He wants people to pray for the things that are his will. I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Like God wants the church collectively to be praying for everyone's salvation. It's like the Spurgeon quote, let no one go unprayed for. Let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. The church collectively, no one person can pray for everyone, but um, the church collectively should literally be praying for the salvation of all people, not just like God save everyone, but I think like to whatever extent we can, by name, praying for the salvation of everyone. No one should go unwarned or unprayed for. All right, the seventh one, the last one that I tool for evangelism that I wanted to mention is spiritual warfare and authority in spiritual warfare. So there are demons and there are demonic angels and they do seek to hinder the advancement of the gospel in a real and tangible way. But God's given us authority over them. Luke 10 verse 19. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. So there will be, there's a few ways in which this applies practically. There will be people who you evangelize into who have demons and their demons don't want them to hear the gospel. But you have spiritual authority by God to bind their demons. If you don't know about that, you should read one of the free books on the foundational book list we have about it. There's also, I believe, um, in the book of Daniel, um, you, we can see that there are demons over nations and cities, and angels over nations and cities. There's spiritual warfare going on by geographical region. And we should be fighting against the demonic forces in prayer. but that makes a tangible difference on what happens. I just want to emphasize, we need to be using all seven of these. If we're not using all seven of these, that is a problem. And um, if you haven't written these down, if you have a pen or a paper or your phone with you, write all seven of them down. I want you to sometime in this week, even if it's while you're doing something else, but I want you to do it seriously, think about each one of these and what you could do to use them better. And to pray about what you could do to use them better. I'll give you a minute or so to write them down. If you're listening on the podcast while you're driving your car or something, don't write them down. Instead, you can just think, think now. You can just think about what you could do to do them better. The last thing I want to talk about, um, I think it's important to our evangelism and to our view of the Great Commission to have a victorious eschatology. So eschatology, ology is Greek for study, and um, eschat coming from eschaton, or having to do with the future. So study of the future, future events, what we believe about the future. Um, I believe we should have a positive eschatology as Christians. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes a big difference in um, how we live our lives. But when I say having a positive eschatology, what I specifically mean is not having the idea that the world's getting worse and worse and worse, and that people aren't going to be saved, and that less and less people are going to be saved until the church basically diminishes. 
And then Christ will come back and just smash it with an iron fist. Christ will indeed rule with an iron fist, but that's not how it's going to happen. Um, so before I get into why it's important, let's look at a few reasons why one should have a victorious eschatology. Um, for one, having a victorious eschatology, it just makes more sense biblically, and there's four reasons it does. I don't have time to get into it in detail. I should probably do an entire sermon on this eventually, but we don't have time for that today. Number one is just God's glory. Like God does all things for his glory. That's the reason for the story of redemption happening. And I just can't comprehend. I mean, I know God does things we can't comprehend, but it, to me it doesn't fit with the scriptures. It doesn't fit with the way the scriptures show the world as being and show God as being. That, you know, for God's glory, he's just going to let his church be utterly defeated and come to nothing. That's real glorious. <laughs> also, um, you know, Matthew 24. So a lot of people who preach that the world's just going to go, get worse and worse and worse until the church comes to nothing, talk about Matthew 24. Um, but I think most of what's talked about in Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And again, I wish I had more time to get into that, but we will give a quick reason why. Um, so all the things that he says in the first part of Matthew 24 that, they, that people say are talking about the end times, they really fit for the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and that'll be have something you have to study if you haven't. But what really confirms it, or what really shows it, is um, if you look at... Where did I put that? Matthew 24, verse 32 through 34. Which I forgot to put in my notes. Could someone read it? It's on the slide behind you. Oh, okay. All right. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see all these things, know then that the time is near at the very gates. And truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. These things took place in Christ's generation. I remember when... I this idea was first told me, and I'm like, huh, well, at least that verse would make sense if that were true. And then I had to look into it more, and then I looked at what happened in 70 AD, and I read Matthew 24 again and compared it, and I'm like, huh, <coughs> wow, that really fits well. And if it's not a thought you've considered before, you should, do, you can, should consider it. Another uh, scripture reason is, um, let's see, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, 
Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So it doesn't say God must reign until his church falls apart because he's reigning in such a way where he doesn't help his church. It says he reigns until he puts his enemies under his feet. His feet are the church. The church is his body. We are his feet. His enemies will be put under us. Then the last verse in this very short reason for why I think this is Matthew 16, 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came in the midst of the district of Caesarea Philippi, we're going to come back to that in a second. It's very important that he was in Caesarea Philippi when this happens. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what, I've, one, what I'm getting at here is I will build my church on this rock and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But there's some context here that can be easy to miss. Um, so they were in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. And in Sierra, Sierra Philippi is the foot of Mount Hemron. Mount Hemron was the religious center of worship for the Greek god Pan. And it was a disgusting place. Um, so they believed that... Um, actually, let's go to the slide that's a picture. This is a rock with a big hole in it at Mount Hemron. And it's just the hole that goes down. And in the winter, or in the spring, the spring water flows through it. So the Greeks thought that this was a gate to the underworld. And uh, they thought that the fertility gods would go into the underworld in the winter and then come back in the spring. And so they would have these pagan worship festivals where they'd like have intimate relations with goats and hire prostitutes and do a bunch of stuff to get their fertility gods back. But they thought this was the gate to the underworld. So this would be known in the pagan's mind or in the area as the gates of Hades. This is a rock where the gates of Hades are. Jesus is saying, I will build my church at the gates of Hades, at the most pagan place, and the gates of Hades, the immorality of the world, will not conquer my church. Amen. God's church conquers the immorality of the world, the immorality of the people living at the gates of Hades, and it goes in to rescue them. 
If you would like to learn more about this or think or study more about this, then um, you should read Eschatology of Victory or talk to me afterwards or do both. All right, conclusion. So point number one, we need to pursue all that God has given us as tools because I know we don't use all seven of them. We really don't. And that's something God will give us grace to fix. Uh, second point, what we're going to be talking about next week, this was kind of an overview somewhat, kind of on an overview level. Next week we're going to be talking about practically what we can do as individuals to understand our role in the Great Commission and to pursue it. And like I said, if we're not practically doing things, we're living in disobedience to the Great Commission. So before I speak next time that I do, please think about and pray about, you know, what is my role in the Great Commission? What, I, what can I be doing? And come prepared beforehand. And we'll talk about that, and it'll be good. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you that we can learn from your word. Thank you that you raise a victorious church. Thank you that you give us tools to conquer in your name. And thank you that you are redeeming creation. We pray that you would make us more of a part of your redemption of creation, that you would give us power of your spirit, that you would break the areas where we're not using your tools and where we're neglecting your power, Lord. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on us greatly and give us boldness with your gospel, Lord. We pray that you would fill us with wisdom. We pray that you would make us passionate about the advancement of your kingdom. And we pray that you would bring your kingdom to Dayton and to the ends of the earth. Thank you for your grace and amen.